So we are in Ephesians today. We're continuing our series on the resurrection life, on how the resurrection of Jesus impacts some very specific ways that we live. I'm going to invite David Yu to come up and read our passage this morning. And as he's coming, if you would stand, please, for the reading of God's word. So if you could turn to your Bibles or look up at the screen, this is Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are, are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice." Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of God. All right. From the passage that David just read for us this morning, I'm going to preach from this question. Work that steals or work that shares? Work that steals or work that shares. We're going to talk about work this morning. Work can be a strange thing. Because on the one hand, it's pretty basic. Most of us here work, have worked, will work one day. When we meet somebody new, we often ask them, one of our first questions is what? What do we do? Uh, We ask our children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when we ask that, we don't mean what sort of character do you want to develop? What sort of virtue do you want to develop? We we mean, how are you going to earn a paycheck? (laughs) We ask of retired people, what did you do? Or what's it like not to work? As though meaningful life ceases after retirement. But for something so basic, so universal, I think most of us, have complicated feelings about work. For example, whether or not our job intersects with our passions and strengths, or how appreciated or not we are by our supervisors, or how equitable our compensation is or is not. The red tape and bureaucracy that makes us forget why we ever wanted to do this job in the first place. The distance that opens up between friends as one friend is consistently promoted and the other seems stuck in a dead-end job. The identity crisis that often accompanies a job that pays the bills but doesn't quite match what we imagined for ourselves at this stage in life. 
But for all of our many different complicated feelings about work, I'm guessing that most of us would at least agree on one thing. We would agree that one of the main reasons, maybe the main reasons that we work, is to get paid. Would you agree? Not just me? Okay. And the reason I feel comfortable assuming this about most of us is that if today somebody walked into this gym and said to us that money was no longer our concern, that we had access to an unlimited bank account, my hunch is that the first call you would make tomorrow, or if your job is closed tomorrow on Tuesday, would be to your job saying that they had seen the last of you. (laughs) We work, in part at least, to get paid, and there's nothing really wrong about that. The problem comes when our need to make money is influenced by our culture of greed. Because a society like ours that's built on consumerism and debt and wall-to-wall marketing is a society which leverages greed as the motivation for work. The work we do is not immune from the greed that can creep into our desires. But according to our passage in Ephesians, greed is never the motivation for why Christians work. Instead, what we find in verse 28 is that the Ephesians worked to meet others' needs as evidence of their new life in Christ. In other words, our motivation is generosity, not greed. I consider myself profoundly lucky, blessed to have work that is meaningful to me personally and fulfilling. Being a pastor can be hard, just like any other kind of work, but I love what I do, and I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. And I'm also aware that that can actually be a a kind of rare experience. Many of you put up with underpaying jobs and ungrateful supervisors and ridiculous amounts of red tape. Frankly, for some of you, the very best thing about your job is the fact that you get a paycheck. And all of us, whether we love or hate our jobs, are susceptible to the greed that is portrayed as normal in our culture. And so I think it's important for us to pay close attention to a biblical vision for work. Paul describes something very different than our culture of greed, and here's how I'm going to say it today. Jesus converts greed into generosity so that our work can meet others' needs. Jesus converts greed to generosity so that our work can meet others' needs. Verse 28, which is going to be the focus uh, of my sermon here in just a few minutes, sits within a larger section of Ephesians that begins with Paul contrasting the Ephesian Christians' earlier, previous way of life with their new life in Jesus. And then he goes on to give a bunch of ways that this new life in Christ plays out, what it looks like, and he includes our work. So in order to reflect on the motivations of our work, whether it's greed or generosity, we're going to look at two transformations that Paul identifies. The transformation from ignorant thinking to renewed minds and the transformation of stealing to sharing. From ignorant thinking to renewed minds and from stealing to sharing. 
Understanding these two transformations is going to help us see how Jesus converts greed into generosity so that our work can meet others' needs. So let's take this first one, the transformation from ignorant thinking to renewed minds. In verses 17 through 24, Paul continually contrasts the the Gentile way of life with the Christian way of life. And and when Paul does this, he's not thinking about Gentiles as an ethnic group. He's thinking of Gentiles as a cultural group. You could almost read the passage that David read for us and substitute American for Gentile. It has to do with the the, the morality of the majority culture. That's what Paul is getting at here. And there's a sequence to what Paul writes. And I had a hard time picturing this, so this is how I I helped myself imagine this. There's a sequence in four parts, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, again, thinking more about the morality of the majority culture, in the futility of their thinking. That word futile has to do with uh, meaninglessness or emptiness, pointlessness. The next point, the next sequence in his logic Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. So so understanding is clouded, which leads to a separation of God. Then the third part, because of the ignorance that is in them, the fourth part, due to the hardening of their hearts. This is Paul's logic in these verses. But his logic also works in in reverse. And I think to really get a sense of this, it's important that we see the arrow moving kind of back across the page. That it's actually the root of the Gentiles' way of life is hardened hearts. Hardened hearts which lead to an ignorance, which leads to a darkened understanding and separation from God, which then leads to a way of living and thinking that is empty, meaningless, futile. But the, but the heart of what Paul is, is getting at here is hearts that have been hardened. Paul's getting at here our, our sinful condition and the way our sinful condition alienates us from God and leads to destructive and meaningless ways of living. It's important for us to see the, the centrality of, of the heart and what Paul is after if we're going to understand anything else. For, for the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, the, the heart has to do with the essence of who we are. It's the, the center of who we are. This is why Jesus talks so much about changed hearts. One theologian says that, that the heart is the seat of our loyalties. It's w- where our desires and our affections come from. And so we're going to see how important this is as we think about work in a few minutes. Paul goes on to identify the results of this way of life, of this Gentile way of life, or again, this American way of life. In verse 19, he says, Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and are full of greed. Paul says that that having lost sensitivity to what's most important, to what really matters, to, to, to God, the Gentiles pursue temporary satisfaction. The Gentiles see life as the the way to pursue temporary satisfaction. He uses this word sensuality, which has to do with selfish sexual expressions 
But we can't limit it to that because he then tags on the word greed. So Paul's not just thinking about selfish sexuality. He's thinking about a a posture of selfishness and greed. That this Gentile way of life that begins with hardened hearts leads to greedy, self-centered, selfish expressions of thinking and living. He then goes on to contrast this Gentile way of life, the ignorant thinking, with new life in Christ, with the renewed minds. This is the transformation that Paul is hoping we will see. In verse 20, he says, that, however, that Gentile way of thinking, that Gentile way of life, however, is not the way of life you learned. Now, when, when I hear the way of life you learned, I, I imagine Paul thinking, okay, so you just need to, you need to think correctly. You, you need to understand correctly. This is about getting enough knowledge about who Jesus is, and then you'll be able to live differently than this futile way of our culture. But a more accurate or closer transition, translation of verse 20 would be something like this. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Paul does not say you did not learn about Christ. Paul says you did not learn Christ in this way. That's an important distinction. My son Elliot is 10 years old, and he's been taking piano for about three years right now. Now, Elliot is learning about piano. As part of his weekly homework, his teacher comes, and she gives him a, a, a book. He has to figure out what the notes mean, and he has to fill things in on the chart. He's learning about piano. But our goal for for Elliot is not that he learns about piano because I can learn about piano and sound horrible actually touching a piano. We want Elliot not to learn about piano. What do we want Elliot to do? To learn piano. We want piano to be in him. We want him to be able to sit down to a piano and sound like Zach sounds at the piano. We, we want him not to learn about the thing. We want him to learn the thing itself. And this is the distinction that Paul is making. He says, this is, you, you don't live like this, not because you have learned about Jesus, not because you have learned everything about Jesus, not because you have your doctrine all perfectly in order, but because you have learned Christ. Because you've been encountered and transformed because Christ is in you. Is the distinction clear? That's what Paul is after. It's the transformation of our hearts that comes about when we have been transformed by Jesus. Now, we saw just a minute ago that that the Gentile actions, the futile thinking and living, eventually can be traced back to the deepest desires, to hearts that have been hardened. And so we can rightly assume that that's where the transformation needs to happen. If we're going to live differently then that transformation has to happen in our deepest places as well. It's not just about more head knowledge. This is about total transformation. Our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, traces part of its roots back to Sweden and a movement called pietism. And pietism in Sweden had to do with kind of getting back to the relational nature of faith. There was a a lot of people who knew a lot about Christianity, a lot about Jesus. It was very formal, very structured. But these pietists were interested in a living experience of transformation with Jesus. And they called themselves pietists. One of these early pietists was Carl Rosinius. And he writes this in 1842. 
He says, a pietist has remodeled his heart and life so that in his heart he experiences what the word contains, that is the Bible, and then practices this in work and deed. Thus, he is the one who not only reads, hears, and understands. In other words, he's not just learning. He's not just knowing what healing means, but also in his heart experiences what this means. Through the word, he has received the kind of heart that reverences the commandments of God. He knows his sins with remorse and fear, and he has genuinely undergone the process of laying aside these sins. What old dude with sweet sideburns is getting at is that it's not enough to just know about Jesus, to learn about Jesus, but we are to be transformed at our deepest place by the living and resurrected Christ. Amen? This is what Paul is getting at here. The therefore, the, the you used to live like this, but now you don't have to live like this anymore, hinges not simply on knowledge, but on being transformed at our deepest place by the lived, resurrected power of God in Jesus. Amen? That's what we want. That's what we're after. That's what our hope in this life is contingent upon. Paul then goes on to describe what this learning Christ looks like. He uses three different metaphors in quick succession. The first is a metaphor of changing clothes. In verse 22, he says, you were taught with regard to your old life to put on your new self. So something about being transformed by Jesus is like putting on a new pair of clothes, your, your new self. The second metaphor he used has to do with an, a mind that is being taught in verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And then the final metaphor has to do with creation itself and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is resurrection language. This is image of God language. Paul is saying that to be transformed like Christ, to learn Christ, to have our hearts transformed at the deepest levels is like putting on new clothes, having our minds completely reoriented. It's like, being, it's like dying and then being resurrected into new life, into the people we were always created to be. And just like he did with the Gentiles, showing the results of the way that they lived, Paul now gives the results of this way of living out the new life in Jesus. Towards the end of our passage, he, said, he says it, it leads to, to speaking truth. It leads to not staying angry with each other. It leads to building other people up with our words. And, and on and on he goes, painting this picture of a beautiful, countercultural, creative kind of life that leads out of, that flows out of hearts that have been transformed by Jesus. What we do comes from who we are. What we do comes from who you are. I've probably shared this before. Um, years ago, I heard a, an older pastor who was probably in his older at the time. It doesn't seem old now. I was in my early 20s. He was probably in his early 60s. And he's, he, he said that as he aged, he always looked for mentors in ministry who were about 10 years older than he was. And he said that as he got older, if it was harder and harder to find those kinds of mentors. Now, in my mind, what I thought was, oh, that's because everybody's dying as you get older. That was not the point that he was making, though. 
The point that he was making was that as you get older, it becomes harder and harder to cover up your unresolved issues. That when you're younger, you can rely on your strength, your energy, your stamina to hold your stuff together, to put on a good face, to make a good appearance. But as you get older, as you get tireder, it's harder to do that. And so in his experience, he, he said he was finding it harder and harder to find godly mentors who had genuinely been transformed at the deepest level of their hearts. It always stuck with me. Am I depending on my own strength and wisdom to get through, or is Jesus really transforming me at my deepest level? Say amen if you're tracking with me. What we do comes from who we are. How we live flows from our deepest identities. Jesus talked about this all the time. In Luke 6 and 45, he says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now that seems obvious. That seems logical. That seems like, yes, of course. But I want you to consider for a moment how humans actually live. Here's two things humans are really good at. The first is we are good at determining certain boundaries based on certain behaviors. And we say, if you do these things or don't do these things, then you're in. And if you do these things or don't do these things, then you're out. Would you agree humans were pretty good at this, right? Here's the other thing that we're amazing at doing. Failing at the boundaries that we create. (laughs) Transgressing and crossing the boundaries that we create. We can't live up to our own expectations for ourselves. Our expectations tend to be behavior-driven. Do this, don't do this. Act this way, don't act this way, and you'll be acceptable or not. And so this notion that Jesus gets at of being transformed at our deepest level of what we say, of what we do, of what we live, of how we act, actually flowing out of an authentic, deeply transformed place in our lives, I would suggest is actually very counter to how most of us actually live. That most of us actually live as people who are working to modify our behavior rather than actually be transformed at the deepest part of who we are. But what we do comes from who we are. This is why transformation from that ignorant thinking to renewed minds is so incredibly important. It reveals the depths of the transformation that is necessary for us. I want to tell you today, Jesus is not interested in changing your behavior. He wants to change your heart. He wants to change you at the deepest part of who you are. He wants to transform you into the person that you were created to be. Everything else flows from that. As our hearts change, the way that we live justly, righteously, creatively, kindly, generously, graciously in this world will also change. Okay, I know this is supposed to be a sermon about work, and I've not said anything about work. Hang with me for just another second, and we'll talk a little bit about work. Uh, But I I actually want to ask you to reflect on, on something before we move on. Because I think if we miss this first transformation... Uh, we're not actually going to be able to sustain God's vision for our work. God's vision for our work is so different 
than how our culture works itself out. That if we miss this first transformation, there's no way we can sustain God's vision for our work. So before we move on, I, I want to ask you to reflect on these two questions. What do I desire more? Changed behaviors or a transformed heart? And I'm actually going to give us like a couple minutes to just kind of sit with these questions before I move on. Secondly, kind of fleshing this out, do I spend more time beating myself up for what I do or what I didn't do? Or do I spend more time rejoicing in what Jesus has done and is doing in me? Be honest. In your emotional space, in your mental space, what do you spend most time on? Desiring that you do something differently? That your behaviors look differently? Or desiring deep, deep, deep transformation from which everything else will flow? I know lots of us in this room beat ourselves up every single day for not attaining that arbitrary standard that we or someone else has set up for ourselves. We, we, we are harsh with ourselves. We're angry with ourselves. We talk down at ourselves. We spend way more time on that than on rejoicing in what Jesus has already done for me and is doing in me. So I'm actually going to stop talking for a minute so that you can kind of prayerfully sit with those two questions before we move on to talk more about work. I'm not giving us uh, time with those questions because I think I'm super profound to come up with those. I just think that we need to be reminded about what Jesus wants to do in our lives and the scope of what Jesus wants to do in our lives. <clears throat> I hope you'll find time to sit with some of those questions this week. So the first transformation that helps us see how Jesus converts greed into generosity so that our work can meet others' needs is this transformation from ignorant thinking to renewed minds. The second transformation is from stealing to sharing. And here we're going to start talking about work. Like I said before, Paul gives lots of examples of the results that come from lives that have been transformed, hearts that have been transformed by Jesus. And, and one of the examples he gives has to do with work. In verse 28, he writes, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. At first glance, maybe this feels like this is just a passage about stealing, but remember that earlier Paul talked about greed and the way of how, how the Gentile way of life, the hardened heart way of life led to a life of greed and selfishness. So here he's contrasting that with a life of generosity, a generosity that comes from having been transformed by Jesus. This is about a life that leads to sharing. So let's think about this 
Gentile way of life, this greed that leads to stealing. And there's a couple of things that maybe Paul has in mind here. The first is like stealing instead of working. Um, so like getting enough money by taking something from somebody else so you don't have to work. And oh, that's true. That's a thing that exists and some of us have been there before. The Bible is pretty clear on that one. The Eighth Commandment says you shouldn't do that. So we kind of let ourselves off the hook on that one, right? Most of us. Except here's the problem. The Tenth Commandment says not just that we don't steal, but we actually don't covet people's stuff either. And the list is like comprehensive. Don't covet anything, anytime, <laughs> anywhere, basically, right? So we got to be careful about kind of letting ourselves off the hook too easily when it comes to stealing. Because coveting leads to stealing. Greed leads to stealing. And my, sentence, my hunch would be that none of us in this room are exempt from coveting or from feeling greedy. And so before we move on too quickly from thinking about like stealing as replacing work, let's just sit for a second with the fact that we can be greedy people. We can want stuff that's not ours. We can look at a car going by and go, hmm, yeah, I like that. Hey, there's, there's something. Each of us has something there's, that, that, that raises that thing up in us. And that instinct does not ever lead to generosity. That coveting, greedy instinct never leads to generosity. It always leads the other direction, towards taking something that's not ours, okay? So that's one possibility, this greed that leads to stealing. One possibility is stealing instead of working. Okay, here's another thing that I think Paul might be getting at. Stealing as a form of working. So the first one, stealing instead of working. I wonder if Paul's not really focused here on stealing as a form of working. This one's a little more difficult for me, and I think it's maybe more likely that we participate in it uh, happily. What does this look like? What does stealing as a form of working look like? Well, one way it looks, one, one, one way that, it, that is, we see it play out is entire industries that are actually built on the idea of taking stuff from other people. Entire fields of work that are completely dependent on exploiting people and places. Business models that can only be successful if more and more and more is taken from somebody. Are you with me? Right? So I think this is one way that stealing plays out as a form of working. The Bible is not silent about this. Zacchaeus participated in one of these kinds of industries. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He was a tax collector for Rome. So this means that Zacchaeus was in charge of implementing the empires, the foreign occupiers, tax on his own citizens, on his own countrymen. This tax was exploitive. This was not just a tax to like keep the potholes filled in. This was a tax to fill Rome's coffers, to make Caesar wealthy. This was a tax to get as much as possibly could be taken from the people in Judea and Galilee. Historians will talk about families who had, had land for generations in Galilee who lost their land because of Rome's tax. They're taxed into poverty. But then in addition to that, Zacchaeus was expected to take a little bit for himself as well to line his own pocket, and so that increased even more what he was taking. Zacchaeus' entire industry, his entire line of work depended on ex exploiting people. You take that away from it, and his industry disappears, as it was known. And here's the important thing for us to think about. 
Nobody in Zach, nobody likes Zacchaeus, okay? Nobody, he didn't have any friends, right? Nobody likes Zacchaeus. But nobody looked at Zacchaeus as the problem because it was just part of the way things were. This is just the system. This is just how it works. This is just what life is look like, just looks like. So nobody looked at Zacchaeus and said, now if Zacchaeus would just go away, we'd be okay. He was just a, a symptom of the system. I think that's important for us as we evaluate how we contribute to or are complicit in stealing as a form of work. Because most likely, nobody is kind of looking around and seeing it real obviously. Because it's just a part of our economy. It's just a part of how things work. We just take it for granted that these are necessary evils. You guys know who Michael Lewis is? He's an author. And he has a new podcast that I like, I'm listening to right now. And I think it was episode two or three, he talked about the student loan industry. Man, you want to feel icky about something? <laughs> Listen to that podcast. Um, and kind of traces the evolution of the student loan industry. And he follows different people who've been impacted by it. And what he comes to learn is that these, bar, these lending institutions, they never want you to pay off your loan. Their goal is not to help you pay off your student loan. Their goal is to keep you paying that student loan until you die. They are happy to give you a deferment on your student loan. They are happy to push that thing down the road as long as interest continues to a pile up. Uh, they, they're, they're, many of, of the, apparently, many of these institutions make it intentionally difficult for you to pay off your loan sooner than they were expecting you to pay it off. And there may be certain programs that are designed to actually eliminate some of your student debt, and they work really hard to obscure those programs and those possibilities and to make it very hard for those things to be accessed. And so at some point in this podcast, uh, Michael Lewis says this, ordinary people who thought they were the lending institution's customers, found out that they were actually the crop. I was like, oh. They're not the customers. They're the crop. They're being exploited, taken from. The business model depends and requires that any of us who have student loans remain indebted to those lending institutions for as long as possible. Shake your head if you are tracking with what I'm saying. Okay. I know we got some people who can personally bear witness to this thing today. Uh, this thing plays out in a kind of uh, uh, global scale for us in our day, I would say. Some of you would have seen the, this headline from a couple of weeks ago, this UN report that came out. Humans are transforming Earth's natural landscape so dramatically that as many as one million plant and animal species are now at risk of extinction. One million is a lot! Posing a dire threat to ecosystems that people all over the world depend on for their survival. I would suggest that headlines like this are evidence of our acceptance of a kind of work that is actually just thinly veiled Stealing, exploitation, thief, taking as much as can possibly be taken from people, from land, from the environment, from the planet, from the ecosystem. How much can we get? How much can we take? How much money can be made? And literally 
God's creation is groaning under our theft. Stealing as a form of working. I read a headline like that and I go, okay, I'm not in charge of a multinational corporation. There's not a lot I can do about that. I don't like it. I can feel good about myself for just putting that slide up there and saying how bad it is. I think there's another way, though, that this um, stealing as a form of working plays out. And I would say it this way. Work, any work, my work, your work, that is motivated by greed instead of generosity is actually a form of stealing. Work that is motivated by greed instead of generosity can be a kind of stealing. Again, Jesus is about our motivations. Jesus is about our transformed hearts. Are we greedy or are we generous? You could could be in the most angelic profession in the world. You could be a teacher in an under-resourced district in our city. You could be a hospice care nurse. You could be a firefighter. You could be in the most benevolent field, kind-hearted field. The rest of us feel guilty because we're not doing the work that you're doing. And your motivation still be greed and not generosity. So we can't let ourselves off the hook here because Jesus is about transforming our hearts at their deepest level. And work that is motivated by greed is a reflection of the former way of life and not the new life in Christ that is promised for us. So that, I would suggest all of that is work that steals. And Paul says there's a transformation to work that shares, to work that is generous. We start to see this playing out in verse 24 when Paul says that we're to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That sounds good, put on the new self. To understand this, we've got to go back a little bit to the very beginning in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, and then he goes on basically, rule over and care for the world. And then verse 15 of chapter 2, then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Here's the relevant point for us today. Woman and man are created in the image of God for a purpose. And the purpose is so that we can care for the world like God cares for the world. So that we can work like God works. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that humanity can work alongside God to care for and nurture and work in the way God works for the good of the entire creation. What does it look like to work like God works? God's work is never greedy. Would you agree? God's work is always generous, self-giving. The the last verse in our passage gets at this when Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as Christ Jesus forgave you. What does it look like to work like God works? It's to be motivated by generosity and not greed. It's to give of ourselves. It's that others would flourish and do well and thrive around us as a result of the work that we do. 
Our work is not stealing. It's sharing motivated by generosity. One of, in, in the last years of his life, Dr. King gave this important speech at Riverside Church in New York City about the Vietnam War. And in it, he, just a short sentence, he says, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. This, for me, is another way of saying what we've been saying all morning. A thing-oriented society is a futile way of life. It's the Gentile way of thinking. It's the how much can I take? How much can I get? How big can I build my own kingdom? A person-oriented society is the kingdom of God. It's a generous way of living. It's a way of working and living in this world that ends up sharing with others rather than taking from them. All of this is possible. This way of life that Paul puts in front of us, this way of working that Paul puts in front of us, not because our society is set up to make this easy. It's not. It's possible because you and I were created to be like God, the author of Genesis said, when it comes to our work and care. And in Christ Jesus, we are being transformed from greed to generosity. So, so I want to know, what does it look like to bring our renewed minds to work? If that first transformation from futile thinking to renewed minds is the kind of essence of our transformation in Jesus, then what does it look like for David to bring a renewed mind to the classroom on Tuesday? What does it look like for Marquita to bring a renewed mind to the students at, at diet that she's working with? Did you hear what I'm saying? What does it look, and, I, and this is an important question because I think for many of us, we sort of do this division where we think about our life in Christ and we think about our work. And, and, and at best, we bring Jesus into work when we're annoyed with a coworker, right? Or when something's frustrated. So our prayer requests about work are either, I need a job, I need a better job, or I have a difficult situation that I can't deal with under my own strength at work, right? Those are legitimate prayer requests. But what would it look like to bring all of our renewed minds, our transformed hearts in Jesus, to our work, whatever our work might be? That, to me, is the interesting question. So I want to end with a few other reflection questions for us before I finish up. When we bring our renewed minds to work, we can ask, do I work to have more or to give more? I, I want to nuance that. I want to footnote that by saying that some of you actually need more. <laughs> some of you have been exploited. Some of you have been taken from. Some of you have been made poor by an unjust society. That is real. That is true. But none of that takes away from the motivations of our hearts. Amen? Amen. Do I work to have more or to give more? Do you know how you know? If you get a raise, what's the first thing that you do? You buy that thing for yourself? Not food, but you know that thing. Or you give some away. Here's another question. Is my work a form of stealing? This is what we were talking about just a minute ago. Is the industry that I'm a part of, is the field that I'm working in, at its core, built on exploitation, on taking from other people? 
That is a super uncomfortable question to have to ask because some of us have paychecks that might go away depending on how we answer that question. But this is the way of Jesus. So we have to be willing to ask if whether the work that we're actually a part of is built on a model of exploitation. And if you come to answer that question by saying yes, then I think you've got two choices. Maybe you can think of some other ones too. I think your first choice is to leave, is to quit as soon as possible. And to trust that Jesus is going to provide for your needs. The church has long wrestled with these kinds of questions. We Americans, because some of us have been baptized into this false idea that we live in a Christian nation, we just haven't even thought about this. But if the Holy Spirit of God leads you to say that the industry that I'm a part of is built on a model of exploitation, then some of you need to quit as soon as possible. And you need to allow your walking away to be a kind of prophetic wiping the dust off your feet and moving on to whatever God's going to open up to you next. I think there's a second option. That's to stay and to be subversive. In other words, stay until you get fired. (laughs) Maybe God is calling you to be a spoke or a stick through the spoke of an unjust system. Maybe your presence, the way that you live and act and talk and speak in that place, knowing that you could be fired at any moment, is what God is asking you to do. Does that make sense? I realize that's heavy. I don't say that lightly at all. But it matters. You were created for good work. You are an image bearer of the living God. At your essence, at your identity, is a purpose to image God in this world in how you care for and steward everything that God has given you. So when we just kind of wash our hands of where we spend, what, 80%, 70% of our waking hours, that's not okay for Christian people. So I know this, this could be really costly for some of us today. This is what the Christian life looks like. And the testimony of the saints who've gone before us is that Jesus is always enough. Amen? And some of you who are in like great jobs that are not exploitative, you're going to need to like start setting some money aside, you know, so that when people start quitting their jobs, you got a little something, something to help them out for a while. Amen? Okay. Here's my third question. How can my work lead to more generosity? How can my work lead? Now, the the obvious way of thinking about this is to say, okay, so more of my paycheck could be set aside to be generous. That would be great. That would be amazing. The Bible talks about the tithe, 10% of your income being set aside to give away. So that's a basic sort of good, proper understanding. And if you're at a point in your life where your generosity looks like more like 1% or 2%, okay, you can start moving toward giving more away. For Christian people, 10% is not this legalistic requirement. The tithe, the 10% tithe is just like our, our starting point. It's a reminder that we're just radically generous people with everything that we have. The question is not, do I, re- do I have to give 10% of my net or my gross? That's not a Christian question. That's not a Christian question. 
The Christian question is, how much beyond 10%? God, would you allow me to give? God, would you bless me in such a way financially that I could give 20%, 25%, 40%? That's the the spirit of generosity. Are you with me? So that's, that's one way that we can answer this last question or think about this last question. How can my work lead to more generosity? Another way to think about it would be like, when you're actually at work, how can you be generous in your workplace? in your environment? How can your renewed heart in Christ Jesus be manifest and evident in your workplace? How many people in this room work 40 hours a week, at least 40 hours a week, uh, 50 hours a week? Come on, raise them up high. This is, where, this is helpful. Uh, I said 50, 60 hours a week. Okay. I'm not going to ask beyond that because we're going to have, we're going to pray for you all for those of you who over. Okay. But look, <laughs> The, the, the fact of the matter is most of us spend most of our waking hours at work, right? So that's a whole area of our life where we're called to live generously, right? Where we're called to, to allow the renewed minds of Jesus Christ in us to be evident and visible in our workplaces. Here's the last way I can think about answering this question. And this is just me being really, really practical. Like, we live in a messed up world. We live in a world that does not see and affirm all of the gifts and all the talents and all the strengths and all the experiences and all the educational attainments of everybody in this room, right? There are people in this room who should be working much more interesting jobs than you've been able to find. There are people in this room who should be getting paid more for what you actually do than than what your paycheck actually is. That's the messed up, sinful, broken unequal world that we live in. And and we want to be about changing that in any way that God allows us to be about changing that. Amen? But do not allow your vision for work to be shrunk down to what you get paid for. Because you get paid, some of you get paid for doing something that you don't like to do, that's not life-giving for you, that is not building up your identity and who you are and what your dreams are. You got to do it. You're being faithful. You got to pay the bills. You got responsibilities. You're praying and hoping for something better, but you're doing this thing right now. But do not let your vision for work be shrunk down to what you get a paycheck for. Christians across time and place have had a bigger vision for work. We've used the language of vocation. What's my call? What has God called me to give my best self to as an image bearer of God? And sometimes that lines up with our paycheck, but a lot of times it doesn't. And we make a mistake when we only validate what we get paid for. Does that make sense? So if some of us today can say, God, where have you given me space, capacity, favor, influence to begin doing something that I may not get paid for, but that will be an expression of who you've created me to be, where I can have influence, where I can make a difference, where I can demonstrate and live out your generosity. Through. Does that make, am I making sense right now? Listen, this is how most artists do their art. Most artists do not get paid for their art. Do I have any artists in the room today? Do I have any artists in the room today? I got one art. Have you, you get paid a lot of money for your art? Right, right. Most artists do their art because they love their art. And they know it's important, and they know that the world needs more art, and that it's a, 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 and they do it at nighttime, and on the weekend, or they get up early. Right? That's a very Christian vision 
for how we think about work and vocation because we live in a broken world and every once in a while you're going to get paid for what God's called you to do and so much of the time you're going to go and you're going to do your best you're going to be faithful and then you're going to reserve two, three, four hours a week where you can pursue your passion and your calling faithfully in a way that makes a difference in the lives of people around you. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me be done. Um, We work to be generous. Money is always going to have to be a part of of why we go to work. But for those of us who follow Jesus, the deeper motivation is about generosity. It's about sharing with others. And because our hearts and our desires are being transformed, we can work to be generous. We work so that somebody else's needs can be met. We work, in other words, as image bearers of our generous God whose labor is never selfish and always leads to our flourishing. Why do you work? Is it mostly out of greed or is it generosity that compels you? You were created to work in this world for somebody else's good. In Christ, your heart's are being renewed. You've been given a new heart with better loves and better desires, a generous heart. You've been made for work that is good, good for our world, good for you, and good for our neighbors. So my prayer, may the Lord bless the work of your hands so that your work may be a blessing to many. Amen? Lord Jesus, take um, these words, your scripture, any visions that you're stirring up in our hearts, draw them to yourself, sanctify them and refine them, give them back to your people so that we can be released, not as those who strive to be accepted, not as those who, who work for our identity, but as those who understand the call to work alongside of our generous God. Transform us at our deepest place, Lord Jesus. May generosity be the heartbeat behind everything that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite our ushers to come up to receive our offering this morning. If you're our guest today, please let the offering basket pass by you unless you want to put a welcome card or a prayer card in there. Uh, We'll receive this in just a moment. Uh, As Marquita said earlier, prayer cards and welcome cards can go in these baskets now. If you don't have time, just stop by the hospitality table. You can see Candace or Mama Regina afterwards, and they'll make sure to collect that for you. Jesus, now as an act of worship in this very tangible way, uh, we give to you uh, because you have given so much to us. We give to you because you have entrusted us with finances, with resources, with influence, with education. You've given us lives of meaning and value. So as part of our worship, Lord, we return to you, which you've given to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, Just as a reminder before we sing, to see Melody, who's up front here, about the retreat, if you've not signed up. 
We've got just a couple of spots left, and today's the last day. We'd love for you to be there. If you're unsure about it, come ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you why you don't want to miss our church retreat. She says, yes. Uh, thanks again to everybody who came out last week into our Faith and Race workshop. It was an amazing, amazing experience. Appreciate you for that. Um, and then Thursday, please be back at the Ministry Center for our quarterly conversation at 6.30. Your presence, your wisdom, your prayers are going to be really, really important as we listen together to how God is leading this church forward as it relates to facility in the long term. If you're able, would you stand, please, as we close singing? Amen. Jesus is really trustworthy. The, the life of faith is this series of cliffs. Jesus, are you really asking me to trust you with this? The life of faith with Christ is this series of stepping out into this ah, ah, and then always, always there. Always there. And so if you if anything in the word this morning kind of made you feel like that, that's okay. That's good. That's good. That's part of following Jesus. And he will be there for you when you take that step. Invite other people to walk with you and stand with you in that place. Amen? Do not go there alone. I'm going to pray a benediction over you. I'm going to ask you to join me in praying for our city on this holiday weekend. Jesus Christ, we lift up this city to you. We pray for its safety. We pray for its protection. We pray especially for our young men and our young women this weekend. God, we pray against violence in the name of Jesus. We pray for safety, Lord God. We pray for families that are safe. We pray for blocks that are safe. We pray for neighborhoods that are safe, Lord God. We pray, pray against any kind of bloodshed. We pray against retaliation, Lord Jesus, or vengeance, Lord God. We pray that your justice and your righteousness would reign in Chicago on this weekend. We pray for today and for tomorrow, that everything would be rightly ordered before you. Jesus, if you need to make it thunder and rain all day today and all day tomorrow to keep our streets safe, then we pray that you would do that. Lord God, we pray that you would use us, that you would prompt us to pray, that you prompt us to be vigilant, however you want us to bear witness to our righteous and holy and safekeeping God. We'll say yes to you today, Lord God. Cover your city. Cover it in your shalom. Cover it in your peace and your prosperity and your abundance today. Where there is lack, let there be plenty. Where there is fear, let there be hope. Where there is strife, let there be reconciliation in the name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you here today, tomorrow, and on Tuesday when you go to work. In the name of Jesus, all God's people say, amen and amen and amen. If you want prayer, feel free to come up.